Welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. Uh, Kirk Bottomley, some of you know him, uh, but he's one of the coolest guys that I have met in the last 10 years. Um, he has been the, uh, the uh, Presbyterian pastor, pastor for 30 years. For the last 10 years, he was at Fair Oaks Presbyterian. He retired four years ago. I've been practicing this, and I'm getting this wrong. Um, Kirk, your wife's name is Leila. Thank you. I will say that wrong again in the future. But uh, both of them, and here's the quick one. For 30 years, she had to go to his church. And so finally, when he retired, Leila said, I get to pick the church. And she picked Oak Hills. So would you please give a warm welcome to Kirk as he delivers the message this morning. Well, let's pray. Lord, we pray with the psalmist, open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things in your word and in your world. Open our eyes. Uh, Moses said, let me see your glory. And uh, King David said, one thing I ask of the Lord, this one thing I desire, to dwell every day in your presence and to behold your beauty. O Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus, we're bold to ask for those two things, to behold your glory and to behold your beauty. And as we gaze to be changed more and more into your image and likeness, Jesus, we ask in your name. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Hey, uh, wow, that's pretty good. Hey, today we're going to do something different this morning. I was given the charge and permission several months ago when they put me on the preaching schedule. So, uh... Here we are in Arts Month at Oak Hills, and we're going to go on a journey together to some of the greatest works of art in the history of art. Because many of the greatest artists have also been great preachers. For over a thousand years in the Christian world, the main subject of art was the Bible. This, this book, which tells us the big truths with a capital T, you know, the, the truth about God, truth about the world, uh, its problem, uh, its salvation, its destiny. This, this traditional role, this traditional role of art was to show us these truths. Not, not simply uh, a, a, a pretty decorative something to hang on a wall. Art had a holy function to open to us a window into, into God and into God's, this God-enchanted world and to say to our soul, look, look, and The Bible word for that is behold. You know, those of us who grew up on the King James version, anybody here? 
King James. You know, before about 1970, that was about the only Bible there was. Uh, if you grew up on the King James, you know that word, behold. And it's an archaic word that you seldom use or hear unless it's some angel or prophet um, who's making some important announcement like, fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. Behold. And what, okay, what, what behold means what? What does it mean? Yeah, look, look at this. Look carefully. I'm going to show you something that will blow you away. It's going to change you. Behold. Uh, that word, do you know how often it occurs in the Bible? You know, like, what, 100 times? 200 times? How about 1,300 times? God says, look, I'm going to show you something. I want, I want to tell you something. And you know, that's exactly what every artist is saying when they make a picture. Look at this. This is beautiful. This is true. This is important. You know, open your eyes and open your soul and behold. You know, 1,300 times God says, I want you to visualize this because this is reality. See it in your mind, in your imagination. Real events, uh, God showing up. Uh, real people encountering God alive. And many of history's greatest artists uh, became servants of this behold. Look. And we look and we see the saving story of God, the mighty deeds of God, the beauty of the Lord. In Genesis, for instance, chapter 1, God saw everything that he had made. And behold, there's our word, it was very good. Behold, look, and see the goodness of creation. And you ever wonder why when, when you see a, a beautiful landscape uh, or a still life, it, it moves you. Like this, this Dutch landscape from the 1600s or, or this French landscape from the 1800s or this Impressionist landscape, this Monet or these irises by Van Gogh. How many of you have pictures like this hanging on your wall at home? What is with that? It's because, it's because beauty is something God created to speak to our souls, you know, to point us to him and to remind us the world is God's creation. And it is very good. And so we, we hang pictures up to testify to this truth, consciously or unconsciously. And uh, every artist who paints a, a beautiful landscape, like uh, Melinda w a Word's landscape 
Her sunrise worshiper over there on the easel, stage left. She, you know, she's, she's looking at the majesty of the mountain. She's looking at the rising sun. She falls on her knees in worship. Why? Because she, she has suddenly caught a glimpse of the face of God through the creation and to the creator. See, so every artist who paints a beautiful landscape like these or a still life like these flowers by Renoir or this work by William Franklin Jackson, he's, the, he's a California impressionist. You can see this at the Crocker. Jesus said, behold the lilies of the field. See, uh, the awesome beauty of God's natural world has things to teach our soul, Jesus said. Or... or Instead of lilies, how about the poppies? Or how about the lupin? And these artists are inviting us to do what God invited us to do at the very beginning of creation, to behold the goodness of the Lord. It's very good. And something in our soul goes, yes, I I see it too. But then there's a a paradoxical counter-truth, isn't there? In Genesis chapter 6, it's just five chapters later, God looks on the world. What does he see this time? I mean, he sees the same world. But behold, it has become corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. See, this, this beautiful world has been invaded by an enemy. It's, it's been infected by sin. And human beings, God's magnificent image bearers, have been fatally contaminated and corrupted. And the ruin and damage has spread everywhere. It's poisoned everything. Behold, look how all flesh has corrupted God's way upon the earth. You know, Adam and Eve, they, they, they bring forth children in their corrupted image. And what is God's answer? God's answer is a virgin who will conceive and bring forth a child. Behold, there's our word. You will call his name Jesus. Jesus. Which means the Lord saves because he will save his people from their sins. And look here in the foreground, right? We have this beautiful, uh, the angel Gabriel making his announcement uh, to the Virgin Mary. But what's going on back here in the background? What's happening there? Can you see? Here's a detail. That's what's happening. Adam and Eve are being expelled from paradise. And Fra Angelico is connecting these two events. Why? It's because the birth of Jesus will reopen the gate to paradise. Jesus even said, I am the door. Whoever enters by me will be saved. Well, the Gospels are full of these kind of Beholds, for instance, behold, a funeral procession was coming out as Jesus approached the village gate. A young man had died 
a widow's only son. And Jesus, he touches the coffin and he says, young man, I say to you, get up. And he does. Wow. Behold. Behold, some men were uh, carrying a paralyzed man on a sleeping mat. And they, they, you remember this story? They can't get through the crowd. And so they go up on the roof. They pull off the roof tiles of the poor homeowner's house. And they lower their sick friend down into the middle of the house, right there in front of Jesus. Behold, can you see this? Visualize this. Uh, behold, there was a great tempest in the sea with waves breaking over the boat. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. All four Gospels tell this story. And I love this painting by Rembrandt. You know, the terrifying fury of the storm, the desperate efforts of the fishermen. You know, uh, lines and tackle flying everywhere. The mass pitching like a drunken cross. Uh, this disciple here, you know, throwing up over the side. <laughs> this disciple here looking absolutely hopeless. And finally, one disciple grabs Jesus by the collar and wakes him up and goes, Hey, Lord, don't you care if we're perishing? The Lord, you know, is in the center, this ab. The center is absolute calm. And he goes, huh, what? What's happening? And he turns to the storm. He says, peace, be still. Knock it off. (laughs) Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. I have a copy of this painting at my home, but you can't see the original because it was stolen about two decades ago from the Isabel Gardner Museum in Boston. In, in the Gospel of John, the first time Jesus makes his appearance, in chapter 1, do you remember this? He's in the distance. And John the Baptist sees him, points to him, okay, and, and what does he say? He says it twice. He says, behold, there's our word, The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see, see, don't look at me. Look at him. Behold him, Jesus, destined to be God's atoning sacrifice. Whoa. How do you paint that? How do you paint the atonement? Well, look at this this astonishing crucifixion by Matthias Grunewald. Okay? We see the excruciating sufferings of Christ in this surreal and nightmarish landscape. Remember, we, we sang, on a hill you created, the light of the world was abandoned to die. And the sins and the sufferings of the world are just laid on him. And here, there, who is that? There is John the Baptist again. Wait a minute. At this point in the story, he's dead. You know, Herod had murdered him. Do you remember that? But here he is at the cross. He's standing here. He's facing us. He's, he's addressing us. The Bible is open like he's a preacher 
And he's pointing and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. Behold, look. And we look. And, and there at the feet of Jesus, at the foot of the cross, is what, what do you see? It's a lamb, isn't it? In, in the crook of its front leg, there's, it holds a cross, and its breast is pierced, or, or its throat is cut. I can't quite tell. And a stream of blood spills into a communion chalice. See, you, you don't have to be a theologian to figure this out. The blood of Christ shed for us on the cross, see, and offered to us in holy communion. That is the blood of the Lamb, the Lamb of God that cleanses us from all sins. See, that's atonement. And the artist is saying, behold. And this painting, folks, this painting preaches. Uh, What does that terrible Good Friday mean? It means this. And then, early on Easter morning, behold, there's our word, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone that sealed Jesus' tomb. Behold, look. See, this is reality. See, this is God breaking into our history, breaking open the tomb where Jesus was really dead and really, really raising him, soul and body, to life. I love the, uh, I love the triumphant physicality of this resurrection by Peter Paul Rubens. This is my favorite Easter painting. Look, the artist says to us, because this, this is the real world we live in now. It's a resurrection world that's made possible by the victory of Jesus. Jesus, he, he steps out of the grave and the gospel goes out into the world. Here, Raphael, ooh, let me show you, Raphael, you who, where is he? Here, Raphael, uh, Raphael. Here, Raphael has painted the Apostle Paul preaching to a crowd of Athenians. And what is his message? If anyone is in Christ, you are a new creation. The old you has passed away. And behold, there's our word. Everything has become new. See, this behold is about you. Can you visualize that? A new you, a new creation in you, if you're in Christ. And then finally, in Revelation chapter 21, here we are. It's the last page of the Bible, and the one sitting on the throne, Jesus, the King of Kings, says, Behold, I am making everything new. Did you think our our world was so ruined God couldn't reclaim and restore it. That is his plan, see? He's, God so loved the world. His salvation is cosmic. And the creation story at the beginning of the Bible culminates in revelation in a recreation. Behold, 
I am making everything new. So that once again, God can look at his, the creator can look at everything that he has made and then redeemed and then rehabbed and behold, it's very good again. This beautiful work by the British painter John Martin is one of the few times an artist tried to imagine what does God's new heaven and earth look like? And his Victorian contemporaries, they loved this painting, The Plains of Heaven. And it had an honored place at the Tate Gallery in London for decades. But then a modern and more secular Britain decided in 1935 it's silly and sentimental, and they auctioned it off. Gallery got rid of it. Do you know how much they got for it? Seven pounds. About ten bucks. You could have had that painting. See, how, how easy it is to despise or ignore or forget the salvation story that we read in this book. See, this is a whole different reality. And maybe that's why God has to say 1,300 times, Behold, look, pay attention, see what I'm doing. This is what's real. I really think every artist, uh, including those of you, by the way, and your, your kids, every artist, you who paint, who draw, who sculpt, who compose, uh, who photograph, who dance, who perform, uh, drum, and even bake, right? The culinary arts. When you do art, you are exercising a divine gift. And every artist, every artist has been gifted by God. Whether they're religious or not, whether they're godly or not, whether they're Christian or not, they're gifted and they're called by God to help us see something God wants us to behold. Something beautiful. Something true. Something soul-shaping or soul-transforming. Well, we've been moving very fast through our, our tour. And when you go to a gallery, you're not supposed to do that. So I, I want us to just slow down a bit and, and behold a couple of master works. So let's begin, by going, let's begin by going 70 feet above the marble floor of the Sistine Chapel, where Michelangelo has painted the greatest work of art about the greatest work of art. God creating the universe in nine scenes from Genesis. And this is a, imagine a curved plaster canvas that is 130 feet long and 45 feet wide. We're talking nearly 6,000 feet, square feet of picture space. And I need to forewarn everybody, there is some adult content here. We're going to see naked bodies because uh, the Bible says Adam and Eve, they were naked and there was no shame. And that's how we see them. You know, on the ceiling of one of the holiest churches in the Christian world, Michelangelo said the human nude is a visual metaphor for the beauty of the human soul. So let's go with that. The creation of Adam is one of the most iconic images in art. You've seen a thousand times reproduced or satirized. This, this panel is roughly 10 feet 
by 20 feet. Huge. But the power of this image is undeniable. God created man in his own image. And no one had, no one had imagined it like this. No other artist has, has beat this, has bettered this. So on the left we see reclining on this mossy coast of earth. You know, the Hebrew word for earth is Adama. We see the creature made from earth, Adam. And he awakens. And his, his languorous arm is propped on his knee. He opens his eyes. He, he lifts his head. And he gazes into the face of God. Because he is made. We humans are made for God. We're made to behold the face of God. And Adam gazes into the face of majesty and love. Now over on the right, we see God moving at warp speed across heaven. His huge purple robe is billowing like an enormous womb. And he is the womb of everything that exists, isn't he? And inside his huge mantle, like they're sewn into the lining, are these angels. You know, count them. There are 11 of them. They they're wingless and they, they, they're like a royal retinue bearing the king of heaven across heaven. But they also, do you see, they crane their bodies and their necks. Look at that. Oh, look, because they're gazing at curiosity and wondering, what has God just made? What's he made over there? Adam is, is passive, he's receptive, he's limp in so many ways. He's about to receive the spark and energy of life. And God is active, dynamic. His billowing robe is like this explosion of energy. He's the source of energy and life. But he's also, God is awesomely condescending. He's the king of the cosmos, and, but he's doffed his royal robes, and he's become a blue-collar workman. He's stripped down to this short, thin tunic, revealing a body that is it's ripped and, uh, and sublimely powerful. I mean, he, God does. He looks like the ancient of days. He's full of years, but he's also full of strength full of intelligence, and he's full of fatherly love as he gazes at this beautiful, noble creature that he has created. Adam looks back with love and longing into the face of God. And then God's left arm, do you see this? Is wrapped tenderly around, what is that? Who is that? It's a beautiful woman who just looks demurely and with curiosity. It's Eve. See, she's alive in the mind of God. She isn't created yet. That's in the next panel. But she's in the divine plan. And Michelangelo playfully shows her here, checking out her future partner. There he is. Her hand is wrapped with excitement. Do you see that? around God's arm. I mean, that's what you do when you want to hold on to, while well, something exciting is going on. See, Michelangelo understands this isn't just consummate art. This is good theology. You haven't captured the creation of the human unless 
both image bearers are present. The Bible says male and female created he them in his image and likeness. And there is an unmistakable likeness, isn't there, between God and Adam. The curve of their bodies, their muscular torsos, Adam's right leg echoing God's left leg, his languid left arm mirroring God's powerful right arm, which God stretches out, this huge athletic gesture full of affection and intention. He extends his index finger, you know, forward till it's practically dislocated to touch the uplifted hand and finger of Adam. This is the focal point of the painting, isn't it? The two hands. So what did God, what did Moses ask of God? I want to see your face. And, let me go back. I want to see your face. And King David, what did he long for in Psalm 27? I want to look at the beauty of the Lord. I hear, I hear the Lord calling to me, seek my face. I don't, what does that mean? Where do I go? I don't know, but D- David says, thy face, O Lord, I will seek. And that's what we see here. You know, the divine and the human, face to face, drawing near each other. The touch that gives life, the gaze that conveys love. We were made for this. And is, is that what your soul desires? Was that your prayer this morning when you began to worship? Lord, I want to behold your beauty. I want to seek your face. So, well, we can't uh, forget there's also a counter-truth, isn't there? To the glory of man, and that is the fallenness of man. And that is, that's what's depicted here. In this other huge panel, this is the temptation and expulsion. It combines two episodes from Genesis 3 onto a single panel. Do you see that? Here is the story of the great catastrophe. And on the right is the temptation in paradise. Uh, On the left, on the right is the expulsion from paradise. See, the crime leads to the punishment. And in the center of the panel, we see the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat that! And it's not intellectual knowledge, this tree. It's the knowing that comes from doing. Doing the good God wants, not doing what God forbids. And coiled around that tree is the wily serpent, its upper body like a beautiful woman, like a siren, a seductress, luring the man and woman to a fatal disobedience. And it's not an apple tree, notice. It's a fig tree. Isn't that interesting? Beautiful tree, yummy fruit, and it'll make you wise, the serpent says. See, those are all good things. See, Satan can't invent something better than God and then offer it to us. And so he has to take what is good and twist it or poison it or misuse it. God stretched his arm out to give Adam life, and now the serpent stretches its arm to give the man and the woman death. And Eve turns away from her husband 180 degrees, right? He told her about that tree. She's not listening to him. 
I'm going to eat what I want. And she takes the fruit. But I want you to notice, see, Adam is no innocent bystander, as he's sometimes described. No, he is, he's actively grasping his own fig. I've got to get me one of those. I mean, he's totally committed to this act of disobedience. See, Eve takes, Adam grabs. And notice that before the fall on the left, we have these two beautiful human beings. In the margin of my notes, my wife said, no, they're not beautiful. She thinks Eve is ugly. Okay. And it is true, Michelangelo used, he used men as his models, even for the women, okay. But Eve's face is lovely. I, I think, okay, she's not as hot as you, Leo, but she... <laughs> There's plenty there to squeeze. <laughs> but look, my point is, the beauty on the left, see, is lost on the right. Uh, the Adam and Eve flee into the shadows. Their faces and bodies are ravaged by shame and disgrace. And the, the avenging angel looks like the branch of the same tree as the serpent. Uh, the serpent uh, reaches out, in, reaches left in temptation. The angel reaches right in judgment and drives Adam and Eve out of paradise. And with a cudgel, seems to whack Adam on the back of his head. How could you? What an idiot. And the lush landscape on the left has become this barren wilderness on the right. Uh, these beautiful human beings now, their faces and bodies have been ravaged by shame and disgrace. Uh, Eve tries to cover her nakedness. She cowers in shame as they move east out of Eden. And he feels the sharp pain of God's righteous judgment with an anguished expression of regret on his face. And so in, in these two paintings, these two panels, Michelangelo, the, see the master painter and the master preacher has opened for us a window into these twin truths about our humanity. Behold, we are glorious creatures made in God's image, made in love, made for God, made to love God. And we've disobeyed and become sinners under God's righteous judgment. Well, I think our, our time is up and uh, we're, I'm going to have to bring our little tour to an end. But I hope that God's word to us today, this word, behold, has taken hold. Behold, is a, it, it's a command, isn't it? It's an imperative, like, oh, oh my gosh, look at this. But it's also, it's an invitation. Like when you say to your kids or to your spouse, hey, come here and look at this. This is beautiful. This is amazing. But it's, it's also a lead-in to an announcement or an explanation. Like when you say, look, look, here's the deal. Look, here's, let me give it to you straight. Sometimes it's an explanation that, that changes everything. Changes, I mean, the whole paradigm. Like, behold, a Savior is born for you today. And the world's a different place. 
So behold, it's a command, it's an invitation, it's an announcement. Look, look and see. Uh, so I, I want to leave us with, real quick, four practical takeaways our art tour has for us. Look and see. Look and see the real. So reality is a God-filled, God-present, God-enchanted world. It is not the barren, unenchanted wasteland that the secular world says it is. No. So see the real. Uh, Second, see the goodness. See, when when God created the world, it was very good. And he wants us to, to take delight in its goodness, its pleasures, its fitness. This world fits us. It's giftedness. We don't own it. God owns it. We steward it. Thank you, God. So see the goodness. And, and that means go plant a garden. Go visit the art museum. Go check out the studio during our break. Take a walk. Go on a hike. Peel an orange. Experience the goodness of God's world and let it move you to praise. The third thing is See the brokenness. We have to recognize, as art often does, and our newspapers, and TV, and movies, and pop music, the world's broken. And we're broken. And often we want to deny, or rationalize, or ignore, or anesthetize ourselves against this embarrassing and grim truth. Everything is damaged. And if, if we don't see the ruin, we won't seek the remedy. And so we have to see the brokenness. Don't turn away from it. And finally, see the beauty. Okay. The world may be broken, but it is beautiful. And the beauty transcends the broken people relationships, food, music, a painting, gardens, the ocean, the mountains, uh, science, tech, okay? We're surrounded by beauty. I mean, we can pave paradise and put up a parking lot, but the beauty in God's world persists. It's unsuppressible. It's a powerful testimony that points us to God to the beauty of God. And so I want to encourage you to take time today, to take time every day to see the beauty. To say to your soul and your partner and your friends, oh, look. And let the beauty of our world take us face to face with God. Let's pray. Lord, that is, that's our prayer, that every day we might behold the beauty of the Lord in the sights and the sounds and the tastes and the embraces that we enjoy in your beautiful creation. We declare we live in a God-enchanted world. That's the reality that we live and move in. 
Oh God, open our eyes to see it. In Jesus' name.